Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? This episode, we are going to discuss how sometimes current discrimination against women, like with equal pay, impacts the way that we see the urgency to teach women's history. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 11, Equal Pay. Every week, we tell you one reason for why history teachers have a really hard time teaching about women's history. This week, we are going to talk about equal pay specifically because it fits into the broader theme that presently women are not equal to men. But there are still many people who think that they are. Those people look at history instruction and see that lots of women are not in the lesson plans but are not bothered by it. Probably the same people look at the fact that on the dollar, women make less than men, raise their families with less money than men, and also are not bothered by it. If society cannot accept that we still discriminate against women, how on earth can we possibly expect them to teach equal history? So this week, we're going to talk about equal pay. This is an issue that is fundamental to women's lives. It will impact all of our female students in their future and has a long historical story to go with it. For the first half, we're going to talk about what we mean when we say women are not paid equally to men, and we're going to look at why. After the break, we're going to talk about the history of equal pay and discuss a couple women who have challenged our society to think about being more fair in what kinds of work we reward. Equal pay is a really, obviously, controversial topic um, because... How so? Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's not obvious. Um, I, apparently, this is a debate that um, all the data about how women are making less than men on the dollar is not like it's a statistical argument about what that means so okay. let's get into what that means so when we say that women and minorities are making less than white men on every dollar what we're talking about there is we are talking about the average woman mm-hmm. and the average man when you take their salaries or their hourly rate um, women are making significantly less than men and um, and so so some people say that that's not fair to break it down that way, to look at the data in terms of averages. You need to look at the types of jobs that men and women are doing. And men are in more high power, high pressure jobs than women are. Yeah, and we're not saying all men are in those kind of jobs and all women are not. No, but, but it skews the averages. It skews the averages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... So, you know, that's a that's a choice, right? You can choose to go into these different careers in theory. In theory, yes. There's so, a lot of factors, I'm sure, that goes along with that. There's a lot of factors. And so so tell, like, I think about my own career choices. You know, I made the choices that I made to uh, live where I live. Sure. And I obviously ended up in a very typical female profession being a teacher. Yes. That's accurate. So, um, and and I think a huge factor is that someday I envisioned, when I was making all of these decisions, I envisioned wanting to have a family and the lifestyle, the uh, hours, and all the other things that came with it Mm -hmm. um, 
were conducive to having a family. So yeah. that seemed to make sense at the time. And, you know, and it's interesting when we're talking about this topic, you know, in my career in human resources and as a recruiter, um, I don't think we've talked about it enough of, like, the people I do talk to and the yeah. types of industries and careers that they get into. But it's definitely interesting the observations that you can make of the genders that you speak to in the types of roles that, that you have. And so, you know, often, you know, if I'm, if I'm recruiting for one specific type of position, it can be a majority male applicant pool that I'm talking to. Really? Similarly, if I'm, you know, if I have a, another role, it can be a majority female audience that I'm talking to. And maybe that's, you know, a little bit of something we've talked about previously of what types of industries women and men go into. But I do think a factor is of lifestyle yeah. and the type of choices that you want. And women factor in family, I think, more so than men do. Yeah. And maybe that's a really broad statement, but I think it would ring true in why the, the pay gap is there. Right. Well, and so here's the interesting thing. They've done studies and looked at, like, comparing different fields to each other that mm -hmm. are comparable. Because when you look at, like, in education, for example, my pay is not something that I negotiate. They can't, like, they can't discriminate against me based on gender. No. Because it's, it's You have like, X amount of years of experience. You're on this type of ladder. Yep. You have X amount of it's, education credits. And you're going to be paid this dollar. Yeah. And it's you, public and, record. And, exactly. And you and anybody else would be in that same exact... Exact book. experience. Yeah, so um, so yeah, based on years, based on education, that's my that's my pay, and mm -hmm. there, there's no negotiation. Um, so okay, so you can't within my field. There's not going to be room for discrimination. So why? So then I ask myself, okay, I have a master's degree, and I'm making like probably $10,000 less than most people with master's degrees and if not more. And, um, but then, you know, okay, well, what type of master's degree? Well, I don't have an MBA, right? So, right. so right there, we're starting to get into, well, what is our society value, right? What is our society value? Our society values business more than it values education. Well, it values entertainment more than anything. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Um, and, and so they've done studies where they looked at, I guess the most common career for a woman is to be an elementary school teacher. And so they looked at that career and they looked at really common jobs that men get into that require, that are similar in terms of education and similar in terms of, uh, hours and and those types of things sure. and the career that you know met all those requirements was a software engineer oh interesting they so, make a lot more than teachers they make a <laughs> lot more than teachers but the risk the education all of that is basically the same well I just think about it in my own experience hiring a relatively recent college grad I am Let's say they just finished a bachelor's degree, maybe one to two years experience in industry from an internship. I'm paying them almost what a teacher would be making in like their seventh or eighth year of teaching. Yeah. <laughs> As uh, right out of college. Right. And so then the question is like, am I stupid to have gone down that track? Because this information is out there. Like, I mean, you, you could knew do this when you were in college too. It's not like anyone told you you're going to make tons of money going into education. Right. That's not why you do it. It's a nonprofit industry. Right. It's a service. Exactly. You're a public servant, similarly to police officers, firefighters, 
anyone in public office, you know, you're going into these positions not to make money. It's for the cause and the mission. Right. Right. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be compensated appropriately for it. <laughs> right. So, so it's a tricky comparison because we're talking about the difference between public employment versus private employment right. usually. Um, so, so certainly that's a factor. Um, but I also look at this and I say, okay, but this is also a gender factor. And we have a long history in our country of exploiting women for their work. And the expectation has always been that women's work is free work, right? Right. And women were doing 24-hour jobs for all of human history, right? Raising children, taking care of the home, doing laundry, blah, 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 blah. And when they broke down, we mentioned this in a previous podcast, but when they broke down domestic labor around 1900, they found that women were doing 51 hours a week in domestic labor, which was more than, you know, most jobs that men were working. So um, think about it now during a pandemic too. Not only are women working full-time jobs, they are also full-time caretakers, and now there are teachers at home. Not that they're teachers, you know, and they're making up the lesson plans, but they're administering it and practicing it and qualifying and returning. (laughs) So it's like you're adding an additional 15 hours a week on top of their already busy lives. Right. It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. So, and I think right now um, they've done studies and they've seen that, like, women are taking over much more domestic responsibilities mm-hmm. at home because everybody's living at home. Yeah. I was the the trash consumption in my house went up like tenfold. Well, and like, think I, of all the meals. Like, Someone said to me like, no, 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 I'm still packing lunches for my kids even though they're remote learning. I'm like, why are you doing that? Yeah. Like, because otherwise I would be a cafeteria lady all day. Yeah. They would be snacking nonstop and then I, they would make requests at lunchtime for what they <laughs> wanted. I would be, you know, an order taker and I'm just not doing it. So I think that this is, I mean, the pandemic just adds a whole wrench into this because you, I mean, we are talking about, I mean, my boss, like not intentionally and not wanting to be mean, but was like, okay, so we're going remote. So do your job and watch your child at the same time. Oh, yeah. I don't even know. Or figure out daycare. And, and, and. And I think that the impact that just based on cultural norms and the data supports this, that put so much more work on women in mm-hmm. a lot of cases than it did on men. And that's not, that's not, you know, my family, we are pretty egalitarian and my husband and I passed our child back and forth between each other. But yeah. like. Same. It was, it's not easy. And I, but I do think about that's abnormal from what I hear in, in, in the data and what I've seen in research and recent articles that I'm reading is a lot of the women are taking on majority of the home labor, um, the work and, and in addition to their full-time jobs and careers. Yeah. So, um, I spent a little bit of time, uh, doing some research into equal pay because it's a lot more than just averages and the types of jobs that women and men choose. There's this whole other factor, um, which is that is children. So, and I think we're leading into that really well. And, and so children play a really big role in determining equal pay. And they basically look at, um, the research and actually like women outperform men in college. Most of the time women outperform men in their early careers and then they have children, and that's where you see this major shift in how men and women behave mm-hmm. um, from, like, a behavioral economic standpoint. 
So um, a very critical kind of conservative uh, group looked at um, a Harvard study. So Harvard was looking at a transportation um, company near Boston. Okay. And um, this is a unionized uh, transportation company, and they um, basically found that there was no difference early on, like with younger employees, but when people had children, there was a huge shift in how people behaved. And because it's a union company, they, you know, their sort of assertion, uh, this conservative group that was looking at the study basically mm-hmm. was like, there's no room here for discrimination. Very similar to my job, right? Yeah. Where like, like there's no way that the guy with equal education and equal years of experience down the hall is making more money than me. Right. So, so how in this transportation company is there such a big shift in at the end of the day, men walk home with more money than women do still. Mm. So what's going on? And what was going on was when um, women had children that they needed to get home to and take care of, um, they got home to them and took care of them at every opportunity. They took more time off. They did not sign up for overtime hours and they got home. And I think a large part probably because they wanted to, because they feel pressured to, because for whatever, you know, this doesn't tell us cause, it just tells us that that's what they did. But also childcare is probably ending at a certain hour. They have to Cost of childcare is probably ending at a certain hour. Yeah, so it's like in addition to that. Yeah. But interesting that men didn't prioritize family in the same way. So men did prioritize family, but they do it differently. And so what they found is that men were taking on more work to bring home more pay for the family. Interesting. So So men in the same situation, they have kids at home. They say, yeah, I'll do that over time. Yeah, I'll do, you know, I'll take that on. And um, and it's a very gendered difference in how men and women behave when when there's children at home. And so I don't think it's not men aren't rushing home to the children. Men are staying to earn more. Interesting. So over the course of a lifetime, right, or at least over the course of the first several years of your child's life, that can have a pretty big impact in the average pay that men and women are taking home. Absolutely. So the conservative group that was looking at this in terms of behavioral economics was like, oh, well, look at that. Women are just choosing to work less. Oh, snap. No. So, <laughs> so okay, it is a choice, right? Like, women are going home. That is a choice. And, but, and, and men are choosing to work more. That is a choice. Yes. But it, complete, it completely leaves out this idea that it is a free choice. Right, exactly. That like, you have a million choices here for how your children get raised yeah. and, and how to take care of them and that, you know, and that your husband would be willing to rush home. Well, and one of the things that I've heard from very conservative people, it's a choice to have children at all. And it, yes, that is accurate. It is a choice. But it's also not a choice that I should feel discriminated against because I made it. And that's what we're trying to get at. It's like. Right. But the other, I mean, the other factor there is you did not have a choice in being born female and having to be the one to birth that child and all the things that come with it after that. And I know, especially in the first year of a child's life, there are lots of things that moms have to deal with because of that, that, that dads don't. 
um, and you know, some like things like pumping, things like you know, rushing to the daycare. Well, even to taking time off on, for maternity leave. Taking time off for maternity leave. You know, it's interesting. Um, my husband's school they do get paternity leave, and they are eligible to take FMLA and take time off. Um, and it was frowned upon to take an extended time off. Like yeah, most more... men who have paternity leave do not take the full amount that they are allotted. Exactly. By their and jobs. I'm like, no, 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 you, you pay into that. You earned it. It's part of your benefits and it benefits our family for but you to take that time. The fact that most men don't, that says so much about social pressure. Oh my gosh. On men to Absolutely. work, you know, to work more and to not take that. But not only that, but like, how dare you use your full time too? a little bit of like, and, and for me, I did not want to be on maternity leave. I do enjoy my job. I immediately wanted to go back to, I was like, yep, birth the baby, back to work. Mm-hmm. And people like, no, 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 you have to be home with your child. And mm-hmm. I was like a devil because I didn't want to stay home with my, my newborn. I'm like, they're not doing anything. They're sleeping. <laughs> they sleep. Yeah. I change them. They go back to sleep. They continue to be changed and sleep some more. I was like, I could be working. <laughs> and I all I was thinking about was, the projects I was missing out on that I had a male counterpart in my job that was getting to do some of the things that I really wanted to do. Yeah. And that should never be a, like it shouldn't be a competition in your brain, but I, he got further in his career because he got to be there when I wasn't there in the office and that's huge. And that's my own individual circumstance, but I can't imagine I'm alone in that experience where that I, I wanted to go back so quickly. And I also, with my first son, never wanted to go back. So mm-hmm. it's just different. Our situation was uh, tricky because my husband started a new job right yeah. when we had our baby. And um, because of that, he was no longer eligible for FMLA and paternity leave. But had he not taken that job, which he should have, yeah. he would have had it. And it would have been, we would have done back-to-back maternity yeah. leave. And for the first, like, I think, like, 10 months of our child's life, one of us would have been home. And it would have been, awesome. I think, really awesome. I had a really hard time being home, but I wanted to be there. Yeah. Um, I had a hard time being home because I was dealing with postpartum depression. I was physically dealing with a lot of different things. Yeah, no, my first son, same situation. I wanted to be home, and I took 16 weeks, and thankfully my job allowed for that, and it was awesome. My second son, two weeks is probably all I need, and they're like, my my work actually forced me to take six weeks, and I was like, I don't, I don't want them. I, mm. But there's also no childcare available for a six week old. Nor should you put them in daycare. Nor should. Yeah, it's like, you know, don't call social services on me. But it was one of those things where I was like, so even if I wanted to go back. But I think, I mean, it speaks to to choice. You had no, no choice. choice about being the one to birth the baby. Exactly. And, you, like, clearly your personality is you like work. And yes. you love what you do. And you don't have choice in that. Nope. And so I think I think from go when people say, well, women chose to have a child, it's like, okay, Well, my husband of. can't have a baby. Yeah, like. It's <laughs> By like, himself. Right. <laughs> And then, and then you mentioned earlier, like, you know, issues with childcare. Childcare is the most in in need thing around us. There are so many people that are desperate for childcare. It's a nightmare. Yeah. And, um, and so, so that puts crazy limitations on the amount of time that I can work because Mm -hmm. you have to be there at X time to pick up the kid. Like that's it. 
And thankfully, you know, my husband and I are both in education. And so we have the same hours. And yeah. if I can't get there, he can get there, you know, and we can work that out. Um, Not but, always the case, but thankfully it is. But difficulty finding childcare is driving a lot of parents out of the workforce. And it's pretty alarming the rate that this is happening. Mothers are disproportionately making career sacrifices. Um, Sometimes they're taking on unpaid caregiving responsibilities because their families cannot afford or find childcare. Finding is the thing that scares me the most. Mothers are 40%, 40% more likely than fathers to report that they have personally felt the negative impact of childcare issues on their families. And this is one of those, like, believe women. If 40% more women are feeling this, like, that's a significant amount more women. Women believe them. And then there's this whole issue um, of who the child care workers actually are. Child care workers are predominantly women, and on average, they earn the equivalent of a cashier or food service worker. These are the people that are taking care of America's youth. They are incredibly important. And capitalism, I think, is really failing here. Uh, there is a high demand for child care, and it's not meeting that demand. And not meeting that demand is really limiting women's choice. Not to mention, there's a lot about domestic labor that, um, you know, we all grew up in homes where it was modeled that men and women do different work. And it might be different from home to home. Right. But in general... Yeah, division of labor, division was, not, of labor was not equal. Was not even. And certainly, like, there are some families where dad cooks more than mom or oh, sure. dad, you know, helps out with the dishes more than mom. Well, the gender something. norm roles may have been played out differently in every home, but for the majority of what people might see, it was very unequal. Yeah. And and that, I think, is is problematic. So if women are rushing away from work or taking more time away from work, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, part of that is probably because they have more domestic responsibilities that, you know, their spouse is not helping them out with. And also, obviously, we mentioned at the beginning, men tend to be working jobs that don't give them lots of opportunity yeah. and flexibility to do that. And so so I think that's tricky. So we've got many dynamics here. We've got women choosing jobs that are more flexible, Mm -hmm. but we also have jobs like teaching and software engineers where there's really no difference in terms of like risk and danger and degrees that are needed. And yet men are still making more in those jobs for whatever reason. Right. And so why, so women's quote unquote women's jobs, you know, which kind of cracks me up for all my male <laughs> colleagues in education because they also like do great work and are lovely. AKA my husband. Yeah. AKA my <laughs> husband and your husband and, and the guy, you know, that I work with down the hall. Like, exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> There's plenty of male educators. And all of this is great, except it's also ignoring the fact that there are many instances where women make less than their male colleagues. And this is hidden from them. They don't know that it's happening and they don't really have any means for correcting it. Uh, Software engineers who we've spent a little bit of time talking about today, the average software, female software engineer makes $200 less than her male colleague down the hall. 
That doesn't make any sense. Why is that happening? It's 2020. We've got male celebrities coming out and sacrificing some of their pay so that their, you know, co-stars can can share the spotlight with them equally and, and be paid equally. And well, I think- and then if we haven't even touched on societal pressures. Yes. I mean, so we're talking about a ton of things that are happening that are helping to make some of these. I mean, you already just kind of admitted that, like, you feel like you're, like, not a good mom because you wanted to work. Because I want to work. Like, shame, shame, shame. And, like, there's a whole mommy shaming podcast, I'm sure, about that. But, like, good for you that you don't want to work or that, you know, and that's the choice that we have been given in our lives to make. And we should be able to make them freely without guilt on either end of that. If I want to go back to work then I should feel free to do that, and vice versa. If someone doesn't want to return to the workforce, they shouldn't be penalized for that in the long run. So there's a lot of those factors that go into it. Well, and the research is is really hard because it makes it even harder for women to really establish careers. The research for child development shows that there are incredible gains for children if one of their primary caregivers stays home for the first Uh, four months of the child's life. And so after four months, I didn't find the research to be very convincing. It was kind of hazy. So I don't think that the world needs to move to the two to three years that European countries are giving to families with paid leave. Um, But I think, you know, the fact that and talking about social pressures, I think the fact that more women than men are granted and encouraged to take uh, maternity leave, uh, that's a social norm that right, that's establishing a social norm. So someone like you that doesn't want to be the primary caregiver to stay home, um, doesn't really have much of a choice in terms of what the companies are offering for options. So I am not a politician. I am not an economist. I'm not going to like reform how we do this. But there's a lot of intellectual thought. There's a lot of tough, hardworking women who also want to have families just like men do. And our world doesn't really make that easy. You and I both work in awesome jobs that had maternity leave Mm -hmm. as an option that had policies that followed FMLA. Right. And I think that that is great for us. There are lots of women that don't have those things. And there's no uniformity in what is expected. There's also a lot of like, if you're taking this, then someone else has to do that job. Right. Or do double time or whatever. You know, the district has to pay them twice. That's not even remotely true, actually. I got paid on my own sick time that I had earned over the last seven years. But um, it still was like there's a lot of logistics to figure out and in, in how to Well, and you're the taking position. on those burdens of logistics, whereas our husbands don't have to. Like, they don't have to think who's going to cover for me right. for 12 to 14 weeks sometimes. It's like, yeah. that's... How and, do you make 12 job, to 14 weeks of lesson plans? Well, think about that for a second. <laughs> well, exactly. The point is that you guys can get a sub. In my career, there's no subbing me there's out. There's no sub, yeah. It's my work is then distributed to others within the organization. And that is crippling sometimes to your um, relationships that you build across the organization, especially if you join... I think about, you know, more recently women not telling employers that they're pregnant and feeling really guilty about it to the point where they are not accepting jobs. We talked about it on a recent podcast mm-hmm. um, where Rachel didn't accept a contract yeah. um, because she was pregnant she and didn't guilty. Feel, felt guilty, yeah. which 
you shouldn't feel guilty because your family planning is part of your life and that career choice that you're making. And you should be joining an organization that encourages that and is comfortable with it yeah. and doesn't make it a problem, makes it a celebration and or a norm. Right. We need to make it more normal. I want women to go into any interview opportunity and never feel that their family planning is part of the conversation. It is not my judgment call as a hiring manager. It is not a hiring manager's right to ask. It's the same way if, if a woman is um, in her um, career and she's, you know, 50 plus years old. I don't need to know when you're retiring. That's not my job to make a judgment call. If you're applying for this job, my assumption is that you want this job and all the work that comes along with it for as long as you want it. Like whether you're about to retire or not. So, right. yeah, it's just, you know, some of those things where I want the shift in social structures to change that we even think about those things. Right. So I think that gets to sort of the heart of the matter, which is in order to make space for this, we really have to, we have a very male centric mm -hmm. idea of how labor works and there were lots of things that I wish had been different when I was when I was having a baby, when I was preparing to take leave, and when I came back. I mean, when I came back, I had to pump because I was breastfeeding. I had to pump in my classroom. Oh, geez. I had to lock the door. First of all, like... The door of my classroom, the lock never works, which has got to be, I mean, that's a safety issue for oh a million God. Some reasons. high schooler like, was going to get a show. Oh, my God. So it doesn't <laughs> lock. So kids would come to my classroom, like, during lunch, during whatever, and banging on the door to ask yeah. me a question. And I just, like, sat there quietly and ignored them because I'm like, I'm pumping. Like, this is awkward. And then, and then, so first of all, not even a clean space to pump in. Like, this no. isn't sanitary. Like, Nor do you have, like, a mini fridge that's your own. No, I don't have a mini fridge. So I was storing it. Um, well, so I, we live in, you know, the winter land. So I just put it outside into the, <laughs> out the window because I didn't want to walk all the way down to the teacher's room to store my breast milk. In Mrs. The Ecker, what's outside your window? That, that is breast milk. <laughs> Moving on. So then the so then that's like nightmare number one. Nightmare number two. Nightmare number what two. What if like a small squirrel just carried your breast milk away outside your window? Oh, yeah. Like a bird was like a <laughs> Thank you for your milk. There's also the issue of time, timing. Like oh with my gosh. Well, with so pumping. you're taking time away from your classroom planning to pump. Yes. That is the other piece of that puzzle. So the other so the way that my class schedule worked my prep periods were at the end of the day. Oh my god! So, so you had I to literally work all day with full boobs. I had I had to pump. Uh, I oh I had a little prep period first thing in the morning. So I would pump pump right at the end of that. And then I would just be all out teaching. I'd get to the end of teaching and I would just sit down and just be like, get out! <laughs> it was horrible. And there's no like. There was no, like, hey, so what's your pumping schedule? Like, what do you need? When do you need breaks? Like, No one even talked have... about it. That's, like, what bothers me with, for teachers. You guys don't really have an HR team to, like, protect you from these things. But I think about in the private sector, even in, you know, previous companies, we had lactation rooms. We had a lactation consultant in the, in the organization. We also had schedules that people could sign up through a Google Doc to make sure that they weren't crossing each other in the room. Right. Like, and we made sure that they were accessible within a walking distance to someone's office. Similarly, we had expecting mother parking spaces. Oh, my And gosh. we had expecting father parking spaces where they could park when they were getting close to their wife's due date so that they could be there in timely manner. Yeah. 
That's amazing. But this is the shift that I, you know, I've experienced in my career, just being in human resources in the last five years. Yeah. That was not the case, I think, even 12 years ago when I started in HR. It's like, you know, we wouldn't even talk about stuff like that. And now I'm excited to see that people are thinking about those things, but it's also necessary requirements because people are demanding them as they're being onboarded. They're like, okay, so where's your lactation consultant? It's like, oh, crap, we better hire one of those. Right. You know, and similarly with like diversity, inclusivity and equity and people are asking more questions that and I love it. It's like, let's continue to challenge so that we evolve. Right. Right. So back to this topic though of equal pay. No, but it's amazing because I mean, what we're getting at here is that there are all of these conscious or unconscious burdens that women carry when it comes to children that men just don't. And, you know, my husband didn't have to think about cleaning out the pumping device and he didn't have to think about, well, when is he going to do this and where is he going to do this? And, you know, all those things. And these are all, this is domestic work that I do that I do not get paid for. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that's a choice that we made to take on, to have a child and to breastfeed and, um, yeah, but again, to your point, just because you're female doesn't mean you shouldn't have the same space and time and mental capacity to think about other things other than feeding your child. Yeah. Right. And to have a work environment that is is designed with women and mothers in mind. Exactly. Um when I had my child, and so this gets to equal pay, when I had my child, I also, in addition to my teaching contract, I had three other contracts that I uh did. I was um, advisor to a couple clubs, I coached, and which in education for those listening that don't know, you get stipends typically for those. Correct. So yeah. these are stipend pay, and um, all three of those jobs, I was told I either had to work through my maternity leave, or I had to give them up. I mean, my face is annoyed. I was the I was the department head for my department. My department. Um, voted like I, I mean there was no policy or procedure in place for a mom which it's like this is 2020 like I'm not the first mother to come through this organization and be a department head and to be a department head this, and you can't sit there and tell me this is the first time you've encountered this or had to think of it right and, and if so, it is then good let's talk about it right because right. I'd still like to be the department head when I come back right and um, and so I lost that job and thankfully the person in my department who took that job in my place didn't want the job and we had voted as a department to have her sub for me while I was gone at leadership team meetings okay. but the administrator completely ignored what not only I wanted as the acting department head but also what our entire department wanted oh yeah because we brought it to a vote and and so it's just stuff like this it's like the whole system nothing in my experience showed me that this system was designed for women to have babies because none of the things that were issues were things that my husband also dealt with but do you think you know in our is it a generational thing you know when i think about I know a few women who are a little older than us who are teachers and educators, and I've heard from two of them um, more recently that they get annoyed that young mothers coming in as younger teachers want all these things because they didn't have them. So they're not necessarily 100% supportive of the changes. 
Um, Have you found that to be true in your career? Well, so literally as I was pregnant, they changed our policy related to maternity leave. And so I had to, and it didn't go into effect until July 1st, and I had my child on July 4th. So, like, it was, like, Jeez. it was like very, like, crazy. And I'm so grateful for that because pri- I was the first person ever at my school to be able to take paid maternity leave under FMLA okay. law. And so um, I know there are several people who were, you know, just jealous. I don't think they were resentful of me, but jealous a little bit that, that they didn't have that, that opportunity. That opportunity hadn't presented itself yeah, to I, them. I see that often, but I also, you know, because we're in New Hampshire, I think there's a lot of things that are not as advanced or forward thinking as some other progressive states. And so there's things where, because we also, and people should know, listening is we are a relatively older state. Um, when it comes to our workforce, we're much older than majority of the country. And so a lot of these new, uh, or be it things that should have been happening all along, um, are new to a lot of organizations and they're still challenging them and trying to think of ways that they can interpret them to make things more equal and fair. But in, if people aren't voicing it or bringing it to the attention of the administration or their organization wherever they're working at, it probably won't get addressed or changed. Mm. Yeah. I want to quickly point social studies teachers to a couple resources for teaching about equal pay in a current events or government class. Um, The C3 website, which is where you can find inquiry-based lesson plans, uh, which is c3teachers.org, has a great lesson where students can draw their own conclusions about equal pay using data and document analysis. I will have that resource up on our website. The lessons on our website are in order by chronology, so we'll be at the bottom because it's the most recent. I also want to recommend some wonderful reading to everybody. Gloria Steinem wrote an essay called The Importance of Work, which is published in a book with a collection of her essays. Um, she, in this, in this essay, uh, reminded everyone that we all have two parents. Well, maybe not all of us. I grew up in a single family household, but there are two adults and that doing work on your own to pursue your passion is incredibly important for people's sense of self-worth and fulfillment. This is not to say that someone should not stay home, but that having a little bit of time away from domestic responsibilities is really good for people's mental health, and I highly recommend that essay. And then for the non-social studies teachers out there, I want to recommend a podcast that I recently listened to. Uh, Juna did interviewed a woman who wrote a book called Fair Play. And Fair Play is about the unseen domestic responsibilities and domestic work that women do all the time. The book is incredible. My husband and I recently read it. And she has a deck of cards, which basically are all of the domestic responsibilities that need to get done in a given household. And you and your spouse can sit together and divide them up. They are definitely heterosexual centric. um, And I hope that my LGBTQ friends and followers can, um, you know, just change the language that's in there. Um, So it doesn't necessarily need to be his or hers. It could be anybody's. But it's a really, really great way to look at domestic responsibilities. Make sure you're, uh, you know, dividing the tasks between you and your significant other in an equitable way. Um, it doesn't need to be equal, but it needs to be fair given all the other you know, work-related responsibilities that you and your family have. 
So we're talking about labor. We're talking about how the system isn't built for women. And um, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how very early on, women were some of the earliest voices speaking out about the system. When we labor. say early on, where are we going back to? Industrial revolution. Okay. As, as jobs are really shifting, as our economic structure and society, you know, we're not an agrarian society anymore. Right. And we're going to go to the industrial revolution and look at John D. Rockefeller, who I'm sure many of you know, and is one of his biggest critics was a woman. All right. So let's learn about her. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Patrons who give at the $10 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory sticker. We want to sincerely thank some of our patrons for their contributions. Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio have been some of our biggest fans from the beginning. Thank you so much for your contribution. And a huge thank you to Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. As an educator, your endorsement and passion for equitable education means a great deal. Thank you for your support and endorsement. You can find a link to our Patreon page on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for Remedial Herstory. So let's start with a little history of equal pay. For almost all of history, women have had very different limitations on their rights to property. It wasn't until around the Civil War that women were successful in challenging their rights to private property and demanding access to their own wages and their own property in their own name, not the name of their husband or father. The National Labor Union was organized in 1868, and this massive union pushed for equal pay for equal work. For years, businesses had gotten away with paying women who are literally working side by side with men less. By 1872, the first federal law is passed granting equal pay to federal employees. This law had no impact on women who worked in private companies or state and local governments, and frankly, not a lot of women worked in these federal jobs. That level of quality was not achieved until the Equal Pay Act of 1963, almost 100 years later. The National Association of Colored Women is organized in 1869, and this organization is a massive project lobbying against job discrimination for black women and other issues that were keeping black women from work and from skilled work. The Women's Trade Union League is established in 1903. It advocated for improved wages and improved working conditions for women. The same leaders of that organization would go on to establish the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union. The League of Women Voters advocated for a whole bunch of different policy issues and was organized in 1920. A very well-documented and easy lesson to teach in class would be to teach about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which was a fire that cost women workers, uh, hundreds of women's workers, their, their lives and safety. The Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced in 1923, just after the uh, suffrage amendment passed. 
but it does not pass in Congress until 1972. It takes a long time, and it was never ratified by the states. I imagine that this law will be discussed and, re- and revisited in the next few years. I already mentioned the Equal Pay Act, but Title VII of a Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, and it barred employment discrimination based on race, sex, and other immutable characteristics. In 1978, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act is passed. Employers cannot question potential hires about their plans to have children and to have extended benefits evenly distributed between men and women. And it wasn't until 2009 that the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was signed into law. This law was the result of a lawsuit that Ledbetter had against her employer, Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. She learned that she was being paid much less than her male colleagues. The court told her that she only had 180 days, according to the law, to sue from the date that Goodyear first paid her was paid less than her peers. Obviously, this is impossible if you have no idea that you're not being paid equally. And so poor Lily didn't get her money back. The Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was changed, um, changed Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that said that lawsuits had to be brought within 180 days of the discriminatory act. The recommendation of changing the law actually came from the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who wrote a famous dissent on the Supreme Court recommending such a path. I'm a bit ashamed to say that each one of these groundbreaking equal pay laws or cases get passing mention in my class. But for 50% of the population, these laws ensured their economic security or at least improved it. They should get more attention. I am going to be developing a couple lesson plans over the next few weeks that address each of these issues. They will be available on our website for teachers to download and utilize. At minimum, you should show people the long history and the long battle for advocating for equal pay. I found a timeline online that I think might be really helpful for teachers to do this. The timeline walks you through all the different events that I just went over and shows that women have basically been asking for their right to property and equal pay for centuries. So this is not a new issue. This is a long, enduring issue. And that timeline really, really helps make that clear. I will put that on our website for everyone. So it may seem a little bit tangential, but we're going to be talking about Ida Tarbell, who challenged John D. Rockefeller's monopoly. I bring her up not because she's necessarily an advocate for equal pay, but because she was an advocate for reforming the system to make capitalism more fair for everyone. And she easily fits into any curriculum that you already teach on the Industrial Revolution, because who doesn't mention John D. Rockefeller in class? John D. Rockefeller is one of the wealthiest Americans in U.S. history Mm -hmm. and in the world, probably. So should we tell people a little bit about how he made his wealth? Yes. So he was an oil refiner. And so what he did was he took crude oil and he owned the refineries that converted the crude oil into oil that we can all put into our vehicles. And basically, he fueled the Industrial Revolution. With fuel. With literal (laughs) fuel, okay? We're following you. So he is, he makes his wealth. um, And so I should say when Ida Tarbell is really critical of him, this is very early in his career. Okay. He owns um, 
several oil, oil refineries and they end up getting pulled together into Standard Oil, which today is mobile. Standard Oil later on uh, ends up having their trustees that are sitting on multiple boards. And so in class, when you're teaching kids about Standard Oil, I think the best way to really understand how they made their wealth is this political cartoon where this standard oil can it mm-hmm. has all these arms and they own the bank and they own the post office and they own the shipping and they own the railroad and it's like this octopus that is like grabbing at all these different yeah, things. Yeah, basically they own everything. They don't they don't have to pay anyone else to run them or right. use them. And so they have all these people sitting on different trusts and you know, they're trustees in different organizations, but they're all sort of loyal or in the pocket of standard oil. So um so that's kind of a critical perspective on on Rockefeller. So early in his career, he um, is sort of based in Cleveland, Ohio, and he um, makes a lot of money by buying out a whole bunch of oil refineries that are there that he's in competition with. Yes. And in economics, (laughs) when you have somebody who, like John D. Rockefeller did, he owned 90% of the oil refining. Would that be considered a monopoly? That would definitely be considered a monopoly. He controlled all of it. And so when you have a monopoly, what that does, and the reason why this is really problematic, is it creates um, the prices of goods go up because there's no competition. And there's no one to compete with the pricings to help it stay fair or equitable. No. So the question is, how did he do this? How did he get this wealth? Well, people that are favorable to him would say that he had a keen business eye, that he was ruthless, and that he, you know, went after his, what, the critics of him, and most notably a woman named Ida Tarbell, say that he made his wealth because he had corrupt business dealings and secret backroom deals that none of his competitors could get access to. Okay, so he was in backroom shaking hands where no one could see, and the deals just magically happened. Correct. So Wait, Ida so, Tarbell... Yeah. Tell her, us about her. Who is this woman? Yeah, so her dad, Frank Tarbell, owned an oil refining business in uh, Cleveland. Okay. okay. So she... Not a big fan of Rockefeller from Go. Yeah, I could see that. Her dad basically lost his business because he couldn't compete with Rockefeller. And, you know, in a capitalist society, we want competition, right? We right. want them to be able to compete. And so if you can't compete, you fall behind or you lose your business and yeah. figure it out. Um, and But she basically is on a mission to defend her dad because she, you know, and and others that lost their business to Rockefeller because she's like, this doesn't make any sense. My dad wasn't doing really anything different than Rockefeller was. And all these other people. The image of her in my mind, let me just describe this to you, is like an 18-year-old with like, an annoying little voice. Describe her more to me <laughs> who this woman is. Okay. Well, like she's not she's like older than that. I don't know how daddy, old she is. <laughs> my daddy can't run his business because of your daddy. Yeah. 
So she's an older woman. She's okay. a journalist. And she is among a generation of people that Teddy Roosevelt would later say are muckrakers. They are journalists okay. that are raking through the muck of society to dig up all the grime and, like, display it for everybody. Okay. Um, she really is one of the first, if not the first, investigative journalists in American history. Great. And so she's she's really cool in that. She goes on. I mean, she's a... She's, Do we know who she writes for? She writes for McClure Magazine, um, which was a very famous magazine that had Not to be confused writers. with Mary Claire. <laughs> Correct. McClure. <laughs> um... So, so she's really interesting. So she wrote a book called The History of the Standard Oil Company. So oh. a background on John D. Rockefeller. And is obviously very critical of him okay. and his business practices. She said, Standard Oil Trust was one of the very few business organizations of the country whose growth could not be traced in trustworthy documents. It has come about largely from... The fact that almost constantly since its organization in 1870, the Standard Oil Company has been under investigation by the Congress of the United States and by the legislatures of various states which it, in which it has operated on the suspicion that it was receiving rebates from the railroads and was practicing methods in restraint of free trade. Oh, interesting. So she basically calls him out on not practicing free trade and do you think back then she asked for a quote from Rockefeller (laughs) so she did she went and uh, she couldn't um she hated him and so she (laughs) when she interacted with him she like couldn't talk to him then there's one PBS described a situation where she she was in a room with him for a hearing and she just stared at him and studied him the entire time I was like that's awesome um So so there's an image that Kelsey has up on her laptop right now of Ida she Let's describe her for the crowd here. And you could certainly Google herself, but she definitely is a woman with no smile. No smile. She's hardcore. I mean, her frown lines are serious stuff. (laughs) But she's all business. Like, that is a woman that's out to talk business, not frills, no muss, no fuss. I'm from Ohio. I'm an oil refinery's daughter. I'm coming for you. She's interesting. We talked, we've already done a a podcast on the women's suffrage movement, but she was a vocal anti-suffragist. What? Yeah, because she was like, just go after what you want. No one's holding you back. That was oh. her, sort of her perspective. And in her in her life, that was true, right? Like she was at, she kind yeah. of I imagine wrote, that she spoke from a place of privilege. She as a white absolutely woman. spoke from a place from of money. privilege. <laughs> yeah. Who yeah had had some money and um was obviously a, a gifted writer. Um but but so she's an interesting she would be a really interesting voice to you know, introduce when you're talking about the Industrial Revolution, and then yep. when you get to suffrage, you know, a couple you could of decades, bring her, back up. bring her back up and be like, you know, here yeah, she here's is. Here's the other side of that. Yeah, here's another issue that she took a stand on, and she did write about women's suffrage, and so you could pull quotes from her about that. Okay. Um, so... Rockefeller was really young when he began his company. He was when only you say about that, yeah, how 23 old years old when he started. What? Yeah. And what were you doing at 23? Not that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hmm. Definitely still figuring out if box wine was appropriate for parties. <laughs> so um, 
she believed, and a lot of his competitors believed, that somehow Rockefeller was getting better deals with the railroads. And so it turns out that that was true, and this is what she found. She found that railroads were giving him rebates, meaning cheaper prices, for shipping his oil um, to and from the oil refineries. That sounds illegal. And... So the solution was when other refiners started calling them out is they would just give those people the same rebates. But but they wouldn't advertise but that they it was didn't available. advertise that this was an option. And so one of the reasons Rockefeller got these rebates is because he proposed showed them that he was able to ship more on them and so he deserved those rebates. But maybe if other people knew that there were discounted price options, they would have pursued that too you know there's two sides of that coin some would say that he's very smart for negotiating for himself and taking an opportunity which he was very much praised for in his time that he was an opportunist and would constantly find them the other side of that coin is that those are wicked shady dealings and why didn't they advertise yeah so in her book she wrote in 1868 a member of a rival firm in the business which had been prosperous from the start Uh, and prided itself on its methods, its economy, and its energy, complained. They said, quote, You are giving others better rates than you are us. This was Mr. Alexander, the representative of the firm. We cannot compete if you do that. The railroad agent did not even attempt to deny it. He simply agreed to give Mr. Alexander the rebate also. The railroad took the position with him that if he could ship as much oil as the standard oil... He could have as low a rate, but not otherwise. Standard Oil was the largest in town, though it had some close competitors. Nevertheless, on the strength of its large capacity, it received special favor. So she writes and is obviously very, very critical of him. She, um, of, of his business practices. Right. She does not deny that he was an an outstanding businessman. And she says, quote, Mr. Rockefeller was no ordinary man. He has, he had the powerful imagination to see what might be done with the oil business if it could be centered in his hands. Right. So just, and, and she said like, you know, she talks about how he was a good guy and that he, he, you know, in general wanted the best, um, but, and, and, you know, he was Christian and he had, you know, had all these things that but she was sounds in favor competitive of. and smart and yeah. yeah, but he's, if you're monopolizing, let's talk about the challenge that that creates for labor laws and labor unions and all that other piece of the puzzle. If you're the only guy in town and you're writing the rule book, then no one has opportunity to challenge. And if you don't like it, you got to get out. You got to get out. Right. You have to get, a, you have to get a new job. Um, and change career and, and all those things. But let's talk about, okay, so if that's the only place to work it, it is with Rockefeller, right. whether it be at his post office or his town hall or wherever else he owns. Well, he owns all the oil refineries. I mean, that's that's initially that's how he's building his wealth is by owning the oil refineries. Right. And so he's the ultimate middleman, right? Because you might own all the crude oil in the world, but if you can't convert it into something that people can use, then... then see you, you later. Know, see you later. So, so in, from from that element, oil refiners are incredibly important. But then, if he owns all of them, right? He sets prices. People that work for him don't have options, right? right? It's not like there are you could just 
you could take your skills in oil refining, you know, whatever part of the business and and move them to some other one down the road. You literally have to move out of Ohio to do that. Right. And at that time, that's not what people are doing. No, you don't do that. You go, you work in your town, in your community. So Rockefeller responds and he writes, oh. he, he sort of like wags his finger, finger. He's like, she's, you know, like writing about me, whatever. But you have to give him like one of those old timey, like staunchy, really smart voices. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, that woman. Yeah. He says the sweetness that she tries to bring in referring to these good qualities and this praise, it's simply covering up her wrath and her jealousy, which were all time present. But which she did not show at the time and which she thought she could bring out all the better by weaving this in as a silken thread. So he basically, like, criticizes her for being, for having good rhetoric, right? Yeah. For praising him at the start before, like, really sinking the dagger I mean, it's in. a compliment sandwich at its finest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's a great compliment sandwicher. And he's not fooled at all. So he says she makes a pretense of fairness of the judicial attitude and beneath that pretense she slips into her history in quotes all sorts of evil and prejudicial stuff calling it the record of the court where it was only a statement by a party at interest and she hides the other side she is very adroit and cunning but even she has defeated herself she has overreached herself and anyone who reads her book with care can see that she is dishonest prejudiced and untruthful oh man i feel like um We've heard this statement before by other men being accused of things. Yes. It sounds like that's, oh, is that how you write it? Okay. Every man from a Huron who's ever accused of anything, that's how they'll write it. Yeah. Just ripping. Just rip her down and her character. Don't even talk to what she actually pointed out. Like, no, no, no. Completely wrong from jump. I'm just not even going to address it. Stop trying to butter me up. I still see you. I still see you. Yeah. Yeah. So he he is not he is not fooled by her rhetoric, but he also does, I think, a classic male thing, which is to just completely dismiss it. Yeah. Oh, like um, a woman can never judge me in this character. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So her work, the history of the Standard Oil Company, I think would be a really great thing to bring into the classroom to, you know, as we're talking about labor. Yeah. To to be, um, to be critical of the system that we have created that we don't yeah, like. What you is know, capitalism? How, how we, does that work? How does that work? What is capitalism? How does it work? What were the impacts of no government regulations? Right, laissez-faire economics. Yep. And um, have kids read what this person thought about it. Right. We want to avoid students having the sense that history was inevitable and to help them understand that there were choices made along the way about the type of system that we wanted to create. And um, NPR just today did a really wonderful thing, um, a a really wonderful story on Amazon and how their um, efforts to be more efficient have put employees in danger. And there's a lot of data that shows that uh, employees are getting injured in higher at higher rates where um, there are these like robots that are supposed to be helping them and make it more efficient, but it's actually pushing them to go faster um, and there's, like, a culture of um, trying to, like, bury, you know, incidents like that and have people just, like, not report that they were injured on the job. Well, that's not good. 
So it's a really interesting thing. And so it's not like this is a, a you know. Far an, removed. This is not far removed. We're st- we still live in a capitalist society. And in fact, um, wealth inequity and how our our government is jumping in and regulate or rather not regulating is is reaching industrial revolution level and um and so it's it's crazy because there's this huge historical parallel and i think about you know how he built his business and how amazon is building its business amazon took off during the pandemic oh my gosh yeah um it's crazy how much they own and yeah. then to think that they're still going through acquisitions and mergers and more and more companies are being put under this bubble that, yeah, that how are we still continuing a capitalist society if that's happening? And right. who is it benefiting? Right. And and these are, yeah, if we are, if we're having these, these monopolies form, right, this isn't, ca- this isn't competition. This right. Is, exactly. This is problematic. So, um. I have a lesson plan that I've created um, that is is basically Ida Tarbell's words and then Rockefeller's words, and it really asks kids to decide, do you think that Rockefeller's business practices were unfair? And I love giving students choice to really look at, you know, hear yeah. the words from the horse's mouth, and then they decide. Um, similarly, but a little bit different, um, Rock, one of Rockefeller's biggest rivalries for wealthiest man in America was Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. And Carnegie, you know, uh, the homestead strike that took place at one of Carnegie's mills in Pennsylvania, um, would be a, is a, is an amazing lesson to teach with kids. But Interestingly, women were also involved in some of the protests, um, wives and and, uh, in the strike. Uh, Mothers of people who died working for him were a part of the strike. And um, the Stanford History Education Group actually made a lesson plan where they compared um, the the plant manager's words to Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman was a um, very radical, um, probably like anarchist, probably is what, how she might define her. uh, Itself now. (laughs) Yeah, put herself. Um, But she, you know, she was arrested multiple times for distributing birth control and, (gasps) and she was a labor rights advocate. She was incredible, incredible in that sense, right? Like just a very, like a powerhouse of a woman kind of ahead of her time, but radical in her approach, you know? And what time period was she in? Same time as Ida and, and Rockefeller. And so she's interesting. And, um, so her, so, and and interesting in like, in like a scary way, like kind of an intense (laughs) way. And so her boyfriend ends up trying to assassinate the head of Carnegie's plant. So it's interesting. That's an interesting fact that I think would be, put you know so the question that they ask the students to think about is who do you believe right the head of the plant who has been carrying out all these practices that are basically destroying the union and uh, destroying the workers destroying the workers literally men are dying on this job um putting them in incredible danger or do you believe the radical woman whose boyfriend tried to kill him right it's a really Mm. tricky it's a really tricky uh choice that kids I mean you could make two different movies about that same topic. Yeah. <laughs> so so that lesson plan I'll make sure is up on our website oh, cool. as well okay. because it, it is a woman's voice that's sort of the contrasting voice in the labor movement. Um so there's one that I made and one that Stanford has um related to one of Carnegie's plants. That's great. 
Um, so this gets at the bigger picture of what we were talking about earlier on tonight. It's that because of all of these things happening and the ways that these organizations were male-centric and that they were male-dominated and that's how the society is coming forward, then that's how the decisions are still continuing to be made today. Yes. And, I mean, here are two women who are basically saying, we want competition. Right. We want fair practice. We want fair play. The, both of these women are not really advocating for themselves. They're no. advocating Bigger for picture. their male friends, right, yeah. who are getting crushed by these monopolies that both of these men have. I forget how much Carnegie owned, but he owned a huge percentage of steel manufacturing right, yeah. in, in the United States. And so they're advocating against the system that we're creating that's that's hurting their male, male family members. And I think as women entered into that workforce, it became more about the gender issues and differences and the needs that women have. You know, the differences that men and women have on these jobs is very small prior to children right and so you know in in their time when women had children they lost their job and teachers when you had a child you don't you're no longer a teacher anymore you don't come back you don't come back so um you know so so there's a huge gap in time between what we're talking about here but in both cases it's about challenging the system to be inclusive of people right Right. and and to you know the the employers are looking at at this at a as at a profit angle and 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 no dedication to the individuals working for you trying to show up as their whole self to your place of employment totally your responsibility is not only to the thing you're making and and the widget you're building but it is also to the person that is doing the building yeah right and so you know people in Ida (laughs) Tarbell's time and and Emma Goldman's time are trying to remind these employers that they that humans work for them. Yeah, that a human life is the cost of what they're trying to do. Right. And in our lifetime, what we're seeing change is that, like, mothers who have lots of responsibilities in addition to this job are working for you. Right. And, and, and what's the cost for them? Right. And bring a lot to the table. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, I mean, I remind I, – I mention this to my students regularly that, like, there is nobody – in my t- in the town that I work in who has all of the certifications that I have I am not replaceable in my job and like and I I say that but it was also intentional right yeah. I built the job the career that I have be- to not be a replaceable employee right so when I take maternity leave right like that is there is there is no replacing me on the job, and they want me to come back because I am the most qualified person right. to do that job. So, um, and and I think when we you know when we talk about like getting a sub or getting a whatever, it's it's you're forgetting that in addition to being a mom, I also bring intellectual power Absolutely. and certifications that m- there is nobody to replace me on. My, my colleague who also teaches social studies down the hall cannot teach the AP classes that I teach, right. cannot teach the running start classes that I teach because he doesn't have the certs. Right. And so, and I, I think we've got to change the structure because if we truly want a merit-based society, right, mm-hmm. that has to include women and mothers absolutely awesome thank you brooke for being here tonight anytime kels i'm brooke sullivan i'm kelsey eckert see you next time
<laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.